we are starting our brand new series that we've been looking forward to for a really, really long time. If you've been a part of our church for even a short space of time, you've probably heard us make reference to the practice of Sabbath. And I would imagine that that kind of conjures up different instinctive reactions from different people. And I'm begging you, please, in fact, can I get on my knees? I'm begging you, okay? I'm begging you. Please, 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 please try and remove any filters. Try and remove any like instinctive um, rebuttals. And yeah, but what about, what about? Just, just over the course of the next few weeks, do your best to be open and just simply say, God, what are you trying to say to me during the season? Because I really do believe, and this is, this is quite a serious expectation to put out there, but I really do believe that there are few practices that have the potential to change our lives, our relationships, our marriages, our creativity and productivity at work, at school, um, our overall, our emotional health, our physical health. I think that there are very few practices that have the potential to bring as much life into our lives as this practice of Sabbath. So today I'm going to try and lay a little bit of a biblical foundation. There are probably going to be a bunch of questions that that stirs up in you. You're welcome to send those questions to Milneton at viewchurch.co.za. We're going to have a little bit of a panel, like a Q&A and a bit of a discussion on the third week, just to also help you hear what this has sounded like or what this has looked like for people in different stages of life. So for a single young adult or for a, a couple with young kids, um, people that are maybe empty nesters, whatever the case is, to try and actually help you see some of the practical applications and that we don't kind of narrow our, our expectations too much, but are actually looking to understand the principles and asking God to help us to actually apply this in the right way. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It's a scripture that has meant a lot to me and one of the reasons that it's on the wall over there as well. This is Jesus speaking, right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Not a trick question. Look at the screen behind me. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Rest is from God, not your granny. Okay? It's not some overprotective mother. God has actually created us to live within certain rhythms, to live within certain boundaries and, and margin. And, and just to be very clear, in case anyone thinks that we're trying to encourage laziness, it is not the case at all. There's a passage in the Old Testament where it says that you are to work for six days and rest for one. So if every day is Sabbath, then no day is Sabbath. But if every day is work, then you're just a machine. All right? So, so please don't misunderstand that. We're not feeding. In fact, in fact, not only am I not wanting to feed or excuse laziness, I'm actually, I actually think that this helps us to be more effective, to be more productive, more fruitful, but, but we need to check our hearts, we need to check our motives. Um, I want you to almost imagine what it would look like if every day you brush your teeth, I, I imagine most people would probably do that at, at the basin, maybe there's a mirror there, imagine if like this little battery bar came up on the mirror while you're busy brushing your teeth, and you're like, What? Like 13%. You know, you know, like on your phone, when you've been using your phone for a while, it hasn't been charged for a while, and it's like getting down to 10%, 8%, or maybe 20, 30, whatever the case is. Imagine if we could actually see the battery reading 
for our lives. I'm not going to ask anyone to respond, but I'd be curious, like I'd be really curious to know how many of us would be confident that that battery bar would be like 90% on Sunday morning. Okay, so he's been on leave for a month. Um, think about it, think about it. And, and by the way, by the way, by the way, how many of us would feel bad about admitting that our, that our charge is like right there where it should be? And then ask yourself, why? Why do we so celebrate exhaustion? Why do we so celebrate being so busy that we skim over everything that matters in our lives? Why do we feel like it's a badge of honor to be used like a slave and a machine? What is it? What level of insecurity does that reveal in us that we have to, in a sense, almost make a case for our worth in this world? by being able to convince people of just how busy we are. God is never glorified by exhausted, unhappy people. Think about that for a moment. God is never glorified by exhausted, unhappy people. People that are constantly living beyond their limits. People that are constantly um, being stretched to, to max capacity and then beyond. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. What an invitation. This is Jesus speaking, and he is extending an invitation to find rest. But even deeper than that, he goes on in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And then I love this line, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a soul level rest that is offered to us. Some of us know what it's like to be so tired that we know no amount of sleep is going to be able to catch us up. No amount of achievement, no amount of accolade, no amount of people patting us on the back is going to be able to replenish the, the soul deep fatigue that we're carrying around. I am convinced that there's a level of fatigue, that, so it's like, the, it's like the fatigue beneath the fatigue, it's from the work beneath the work, that only Jesus can actually meet, where he reminds us that we are loved before we produce, that we are loved before we prove, that we are loved before we earn anything. That is a soul-deep level of rest. But then look at how he carries on in the next verse. For my yoke is easy to bear. So there is a yoke, everybody, and the burden I give you is light. There is a yoke, there is a burden. Some scholars suggest that that word yoke refers to the way of doing life. It's the way of the rabbi, the way of that teacher. This wasn't apparently an uncommon metaphor or term to be used when Jesus was using this. He's saying, I have a way of doing life that's actually easy to bear, but there is a way of doing life. I have a burden for you, but relatively speaking, it is light. And I think that there is a healthy, balanced way, rhythms of rest and responsibility, where, where we are able to be who God has called us to be, where we're able to do what God has called us to do, where we're able to be people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and presence, where we are present with people, where people are glad that you're there because 
you don't deny the challenges that are going on, but you're able to be okay in spite of the challenges. In spite of life not being easy, there's a, there's a rhythm that still brings life into that situation. We can only live and love well when we are living in the appropriate rhythm of rest and responsibility. John Tyson, ironically, an Australian pastor who's leading a church in New York City, is the first person I heard talk about this metaphor of the battery. And, and he was arguing that in his opinion, most people, so many people don't rest until we get down to 10 or 20%. Because again, we, we wanna feel like, like we can justify being lazy like sitting on a couch and just being. I mean, that can be lazy if that's all you ever do, but, but, but to be able to go and enjoy nature or to spend time with people that you wanna spend time with and read or what you wanna read and just do things that fill you up and that you can delight in. He's like, people, generally speaking, only feel like it's okay to do that when they hit the 10 or 20% mark. Yet, he argues that the, the, what we miss between just a management level, and by management level, he's referring to like survival, like okay, you know, the, for those of us that are going to work tomorrow morning, like we get up in the morning, and even though we've just had a weekend, it's like, okay, I can get through today. Maybe even this week. Like, like, like there's like a survival mode, like okay, I've, I've, I've kind of escaped enough, I've, I've medicated myself enough, to, I've binge watched enough, I've eaten, I've eaten enough, I've slept enough, okay, 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 I can get through Monday. He's like, he's referring to that survival mode as like management. He's saying that what we miss between a management level and margin is life to the full. How many hundreds or thousands of weeks are we gonna live the exact same way and then wonder why we're not living life to the full as Jesus promised in John 10, 10. When we, when we reject his invitation to live his way and then we wonder why we don't experience his life. Love, a joyful, happy, grateful life, peace and calm from your heart that, that oozes out generosity and gratitude and contentment and presence and wisdom and a skill that comes from living in the quiet with God, all of the best things in life come at like the 80-90%. Let's stop justifying living so low as though it's a badge of honor and let's actually start repenting of that and actually start saying, God, forgive us, help us to actually live the kind of life that produces life, the kind of life that's going to overflow and produce fruit in people's lives, where we can turn up, where we can be present. One of the reasons that I think that this is so important, having the right rhythms are so important, is because it is essential to our discipleship to Jesus, because Jesus said that all the library of Scripture, all the commands, all the prophets, everything is summed up in loving God and loving people. And I'm telling you that it is impossible for us to love God and love people well without being emotionally and physically healthy and spiritually awake. And that requires living within appropriate limits. Yeah. Living within an appropriate rhythm. You might have heard me quote Corrie ten Boom before, 
very well-known author, survivor of the Holocaust, where she said that if God can't make you bad, sorry, if the devil, <laughs> delete, rewind, reverse, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Because it achieves the exact same thing. You see, when you, when you come to God with this legalistic, moralistic train of thought that I have to tick all these boxes, we think, well, as long as I'm ticking those boxes, I'm good with God. And it's, you were not. We're good with God when we're in a relationship with Him. When we're living in the right type of rhythm that allows us to be present with Him, to hear Him, to be reassured by Him, to get perspective from Him, to be reminded of purpose, to allow Him to give us creativity. So we think that the greatest thing that the enemy can do to us is make us like dirty, perverted, like messed up. It really isn't. Guys, that's not His goal. His goal, His his simple, single goal is to keep you away from God and the life that He actually wants you to live. And that's why I think that this is one of the practices, one of the principles that I would imagine the vast majority of Western evangelical Christians flat out ignore. And we don't even realize it, and we don't realize that it's at the cost of our soul, that it's at the cost of a quality of life that God, that Jesus actually died for. He didn't just die to save us for eternity. He died to actually, to actually help us live the type of life that's going to make a difference for eternity. And we cannot make a difference for eternity if we're not living the way that God has created us to live. We're not a machine. Yeah. So... Let me lay a foundation today. We'll get way more practical next week. And as I said on the third week, we'll do a little bit of Q&A and share some testimonies. But I want to, I want to kind of lay a bit of a foundation from a biblical point of, view, point of view, going right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. This is kind of just after the account of creation. It says in verse 2 that on the seventh day, God had finished His work of creation. So He rested from all His work. Like, just to pause there for a moment, right? Can I just emphasize for a second that God rested? Yeah, yeah, but I've got so much. Okay, okay. God rested. Yeah, but I've got kids, and I've got this, and I've got, and I've got deadlines. Okay, but God rested. Yeah, but Jason, you have no idea what my life is like and how many demands. Okay, but guys, God rested. On the seventh day, God rested. And then verse 3, God blessed the seventh day. Two words I want to stand out to you. One is blessed. God blessed the seventh day and declared it, this is the second word, holy. Because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Again, God rested. Okay? In case you feel bad resting, I'm just saying God rested. But those two words, blessed and holy, the word blessed comes from the original uh, Hebrew word barak, which means to to give the ability to reproduce. It's a, it, it means life giving. So so that's why I actually love this idea that when you bless someone, you're actually you're actually like speaking life into someone. Yeah. We see this term used three times in the creation account, and in each occasion, it is referring to a reproducing effect. So God created all the living creatures, and it says he blessed them and told them to multiply and 
become fruitful, yeah. right? Then mankind is created, so humankind is created, and it says that he blessed him, or blessed them, and told them to reproduce, to multiply, to bear fruit and to multiply. Then the third time we see this word used is where he blessed the Sabbath. Is it possible that the Sabbath has the ability to renew life, to renew vision, to renew peace, to renew love, to renew patience, to renew perspective and purpose, and, and, just, and just, just to renew being secure and finding my identity not in what I've done or what I'm going to get done, but in who my Creator is. There is something about the seventh day that is meant to bring life. If you even just think for a moment about the fact that regardless of how much leave people get in a year, and some people are, are exploited and they get very little, others might have like three weeks leave a year, others might have like four weeks leave a year. Regardless of how much leave you do or do not have available to you, add to that that 52 days a year we are invited to stop, rest, delight, and worship. I don't know about you, but way too much of my adult life, I would get to my holiday, my, my, my leave, so exhausted, so smashed, that I would just start probably getting the battery bar up to like 30% by the time my leave's over. Because I didn't live the other 52 days the way that I believe that God has invited me to live it. So blessed is to, it's a life-giving, reproducing effect. The word holy simply means to set apart. Typically, this is a word used to describe God. God is set apart. He is holy. But in this case, the first time this word is used in the Bible is referring to the seventh day, referring to the Sabbath. It is a day that is set apart. You would think, that after, I mean, I mean, rationally, back, especially when this, when this had all taken place and when this was recorded, people would have assumed that, that the creator of the universe would set apart a place to worship him. But instead, he sets apart a period of time. And I don't think that we only have access to God on the seventh day, not by any means. In fact, the other practice, the only other practice that I think should probably trump, not should, probably, definitely trump Sabbath, is a daily time carved out to spend time with our Heavenly Father. Yeah. But I do think that there's something different about an unrushed, hopefully uninterrupted. You, you actually use that little button on the side of your phone that switches it off, perhaps, even. And you, and you like, go through the withdrawal, you know, and the neck, and your thumb doesn't know what to do with itself anymore. And, and you actually just slow down. I think that it's possible that we can experience a level of intimacy with God. Just, that's just slightly different to, to when we're normally having to manage time efficiently during the day, during the week. It is set apart. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I think I might have mentioned this recently, but it only struck me a few weeks back 
that Adam is created on the sixth day and then rest takes place on the seventh day. Adam's first full 24-hour period on this planet was a day of rest. Think about that. Before he'd earned anything, before he'd proven anything, before he'd worked himself into a standstill so that he feels you know, justified collapsing on a rock somewhere. I don't know, they didn't have couches. Um, guys, he's, so, so, so think about this. What does that tell him about God? When his first full day on earth is a day of rest. Ancient rabbis actually believed that God created rest on the seventh day. I don't know if that's true, but I like it. We, if you go read scripture, you know you get a sense of what God created on each day. What a beautiful picture that on the seventh day he created rest. Then we fast forward from Genesis, right? A whole bunch takes place. Um, Adam and Eve sin, Seth, Cain kills Abel, multiplies. Eventually, the flood, the world, Noah and his family, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he, they, he has Joseph as one of his sons, sold into slavery in Egypt. Egypt, they, they begin to develop, and, and all of a sudden, this family becomes a people group, and now all of a sudden, the Hebrews are a few million, and because they are a threat to the Egyptian powers, they are turned into slaves, and they are ravaged. They are worked to the bone. If they were living in the Western world, they'd be celebrated because they worked so hard. Never, never to rest. Never taking a day off. Because they were slaves. If you think it's weak to take a day off, I would suggest that you have a slave mentality. And we are actually worshipping and responding to a God, small g, that didn't create us. I believe then we are actually honoring and responding to the God of this world, which the Bible calls Satan. Because again, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. What if rest, appropriate rest, I'm not talking about laziness, what if appropriate rest is one of the greatest gifts that the enemy wants to try and keep from you? Anyway, they're all slaves. God hears their cry, rescues them, delivers them from Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, now they're wandering in the wilderness, right, for 40 years. And it's during this time that God comes to them, and this account we're about to read in Exodus, and He wants to remind them that they are no longer slaves that have to work from as early as possible till as late as possible every single day of the week. Exodus chapter 16, verse 29 says, and this is, this is God speaking through Moses, to the Israelites, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift. The Sabbath is the Lord's gift. That is why He gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. Because what was happening during this time is that God was, was supernaturally providing. Guys, is it possible that He's still in the business of providing supernaturally? 
Is it possible that God is still in the business where he would still reach out to each one of us and say, I'm able to help you achieve in six days what you think will take you seven? This story is actually referring to two weird, like, ironies. So, so when he first started pro- providing manna, I mean, guys, if you can't read the Bible and see yourself in the story, like, you got a problem. Because I can see my own human nature in, in all of these stories, right? They're just like us. God says, I will provide supernaturally, go out each day and collect enough for today. So what do they do, just like the rest of us? Try and grab as much as they can. Because we don't believe that God will provide again tomorrow. And so we call that hoarding. And in this case, everything that they collected that they didn't need for that day became rotten. Just a side note, there might be stuff that you're hoarding and holding on to that is providing a rot in your life. Okay? Side note. Then, so then, then like God finally gets them to like, okay, 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 Jason, whatever. Okay, just enough for today, okay. Then, on the sixth day, he's like, okay, guys, I think you got the one down. Now, I'm going to say it slowly. You're allowed to take for two days because I actually want you to rest tomorrow. So what do they first do on the seventh day? Like out of the tent, and there's like nothing. Because God said, I provide enough yesterday. And so I really and truly, and by the way, this is not trite for me. I remember Tammy and I having this conversation a couple of years ago in the context of feeling very compassionate for people that are in a certain type of socioeconomic level and earning where, where in the natural it's impossible to earn enough in five or six days. So someone is working their backside off for five days and then another job on a Saturday, another job on a Sunday. And, and from a compassion and a mathematical point of view, I'm like, I get it, absolutely. But from a scriptural point of view, and Tammy, wherever she is, Tammy, if I'm correct, the person that we were referring to, I think, then started implementing this and has actually had enough. In spite of COVID, in spite of her husband losing, losing his job, God has provided in six days what in the natural should have taken seven. It is a gift. Guys, let's trust God with the gift. If you think of the Ten Commandments, those of you that, that are familiar with them at all might notice that the first three commandments refer to loving God. Then there's the fourth commandment, which is about the Sabbath, and then the next six commandments are all about loving people. Don't steal, don't kill, don't you know, lust, uh, 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 covet, etc. The first three are about loving God. And, and some theologians have suggested that, the, that the, the, the fourth commandment is almost like, like the glue that helps us achieve the first three and the last six where we're able to actually love God better and we're able to love people better. If you like statistics and you were to break down the Ten Commandments into a pie chart, 37%, it's the, it's the, it is the commandment that is spoken about in the most detail. 30, so nearly 40% of the Ten Commandments is just about the Sabbath. No other commandment goes into that kind of detail. And I, I can't help thinking that that is because of 
how much rhythm it brings into our lives, how much perspective it brings into our lives, that it forces us to like, and realize I'm not a machine, I'm not a slave. I'm a son, I'm not a slave. He is my father, he's not Pharaoh. But for too many of us, we see God as a Pharaoh. And so there's fear, and we're having to prove, and anyway, you get the point. I love this, this quote that I came across like by complete accident a, a while ago. And when I read it, it's like I needed to think about it again and again and again. G.K. Chesterton said that we cannot break the commandments. We can only break ourselves against them. Now, we might argue, of course you can break, sure, and, and, and I get it. It's, it's semantics, sure. But I might think that I'm breaking the commandments by by not putting God first and by, and by putting my hope and, and trust and, and faith into something else. Um, I, might, I might appear to get away with lying and cheating and coveting and, and, and feeling a murderous hate in my heart towards people. And I might think, well, I'm kind of seem to be getting away with it. I would say, are you? Are we getting away with it when we ignore the principles and promises that lead to life where, where our hearts become increasingly toxic, where we become increasingly anxious, where we become increasingly angry and bitter. You cannot ignore the Ten Commandments and become an increasingly loving, patient, kind, gentle, present person. We cannot break the commandments. We break ourselves against them. Then, 40 years later, so they've now wandered in the wilderness for, for 40 years because they ignored God and rejected Him and didn't trust Him about the promised land, everyone over the age of 18 or 19 died. That's a whole new generation. And so 40 years later, Moses reminds them again in Deuteronomy 5.15. He says, Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with His strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you. I mean, think about the fact that God has to command them. Hey, you have to rest. But then look at ourselves and think, okay, maybe it has to be a command. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day, so that you will break that slave mentality, so that you will break that addiction to production, performance, and consuming. I believe that Sabbath is a gift. It is not so much a commandment as what it is an invitation. He invites us to live a life that leads to life. Last passage of scripture is where Jesus comes onto the scene. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, we hear him saying to a a group of really frustrating people that, that kept getting mad at him for doing good on the Sabbath, right? He says, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. He's saying the Sabbath was made for people. Like it's, it's not another thing to feel guilt and shame about. It's not another thing to add to your to-do list. It's not one more thing for you to tick the box. No, no. God created this for us. Like he doesn't need us to Sabbath. We need to Sabbath. And I want to point out, by the way, 
that if you read the Gospels, so the first four books of the New Testament, you will find again and again how Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. Now, part of it, I think, is just because Jesus was a little bit righteously naughty, and I think he liked to kind of just poke the Pharisees. But I wonder if he wasn't also trying to prove a point. What if he's trying to say there is healing available on the Sabbath? Do you know that the root word that we translate as salvation is the same root word used in the New Testament in Hebrew that is translated healing? So when you read about someone being saved or someone being healed, it's often the same word, soterio. The, the word solve, I think it's a Latin word, comes, is, is, is the word that we get salvation from. Solve is like, you know, to, to put like a, a type of an, a solve ointment on. It's, it's a healing. Is it possible that Sabbath not only saves us in a manner of speaking, but also heals us as we regain perspective as we slow down to be with our Heavenly Father in a way that's different to maybe the amount of time we have during the week. As we, as we reorder our priorities, as we are reminded that our identity is based in the one who loves us, not in what we do. Guys, I'm telling you, I think that Sabbath is a gift that brings healing and hope and restoration. I think, I'm, I'm hoping that if, that if people, and again, all I can do is invite you, because I think that's what Jesus does. He's like, come to me. He's, that's an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary. And I'll give you rest. I think that there could be marriages that are restored this year. Relationships that are deepened. Creativity that is brought to work and school. A vision for the future for those of you that are studying and like, God, what do you want me to do? I, I, and I say this very, very cautiously because I absolutely believe that there's a clinical dynamic to this, but I think that there are even levels of anxiety and depression that can be strengthened, if not healed outright, if we will recognize and respond to invitations to rest appropriately rhythms of rest and responsibility. We get to work for six days. That includes our unpaid work, but we also get to rest for one day. Won't you stand with me, please? Just so you know, there's like a whole other half of the message here. I'll get into the practical stuff next week. I realized in the first service that I was completely dreaming, but I don't want to leave without mentioning this, these last two quotes. One is from John Marcoma, where he says that rest is a spiritual weapon. So often, and, and there's a, listen, make no mistake, there's a place for spiritual warfare, for praying, for interceding, for fighting, for reading, for studying, for reflecting. But there's also a place for rest. Rest is a spiritual weapon. It is really hard to tempt people that are healthy, happy, and well rested. And guys, some of you know yourselves well enough and you've been around long enough to know that, that, that you are most vulnerable to temptation when you are the most stretched, when, you are, when your tanks are empty. And lastly, Dallas Willard, he simply says, we must arrange our lives so that sin no longer looks good to us. 
that distraction, that temptation, that medication that's actually medicating a need that we know is meant to be healed in a different way, let's, let's arrange our lives so that, so that it's like, oh, like, I mean, I mean, it tastes nice, but, oh, like, like, you know, you know, you know when, you, when you've had a break from sugar for a while and you have it again and it's like, there's a part that's like lacquer, like, but, but then there's a the part afterwards that's like, okay. And then if you've been in a habit of eating good nutrition, it's like, I mean, that's, that's, that's cool, that's nice, that's tempting, but I just feel nice when I, when I eat well and rest well and exercise enough. Let's order our lives so that temptation starts to actually lose its appeal, loses its attraction. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and you will find rest. Father, thank you so much that you are the most incredibly loving person we will ever meet. Lord, to think that you have had to make it in the Old Testament a command in order to bless your children. Lord, what does that reveal about your heart for us? Help us to hear your invitation and help us to say yes and to respond. Help us to trust you. Help us not to wait until we have all our ducks in a row. Help us not to wait until we, until we have all of our questions answered. God, help us to actually just experiment and start where we are, not where we want to be. Help us not to wait until our lives are completely, perfectly ordered, until all of our work is done. That's never going to happen. Until we've pleased everybody, answered every email, answered every message, returned every call. God, help us to experiment and to trust you for a season at least, if nothing else, before we think you're wrong. God, help us have enough integrity to take you at your word and to actually stop for 24 hours and rest and delight and worship. Just as you're standing here with your eyes closed and maybe you're even thinking through some practical implications right away, I just want to extend an invitation to anyone that is here right now that has not responded to that first invitation, which is a relationship with God. Just to be very, very clear, what I've tried to explain today without Jesus, it's just self-help mumbo-jumbo. Jesus is the source. It comes from Him. It is sustained by Him, and it will be completed by Him. We need, there's, there's no way to have that level of security and identity and peace and purpose without a relationship with the one who created us. And without unpacking too much information, I think that there are two key ideas that we have to respond to if we want to have a relationship with Jesus. Number one is that He has forgiven you. You cannot earn it. You cannot pay it off. It is free. Jesus died. You cannot add anything to what Jesus did at the cross. It is humbling. It should soften our hearts. But we have to actually accept it. We have to accept that complete forgiveness, washed white as snow. Sin is removed from our lives as far as the east is from the west. So we accept forgiveness. But secondly, we have to make a decision to follow. You don't have to know what all of that entails. We have to know what the next step is and begin. And we follow. And we follow. And we follow 
and we follow. So if that's you today, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll help anyone that is making that decision or maybe someone that has, that has allowed themselves to walk away from you, God, but they are sensing your invitation to come running back. God, help them to accept your forgiveness and help them to make a conscious decision today to follow you, whatever it looks like, whatever the cost, Lord, that they would humble themselves, put themselves into situations where people can, can offer suggestions and, and introduce them to the Bible and, and encourage them in prayer as they walk that journey. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, Amen.